This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. The interviews you're about to hear are with Jennifer Breyer, film director of the documentary Unrest, which details hers and others' experiences living with myalgic encephalomyelitis, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Then following that chat, I had a panel discussion with Dr. Chris Armstrong, a researcher at Bio21 Institute, as well as Anna Kerr, a sufferer of ME and now an activist, as well as Dr. Heidi Nicholl, who is the new CEO of Emerge Australia, a not-for-profit organisation assisting patients with ME. I'm going to be speaking now with uh, Jennifer Breyer, who is director and filmmaker of the documentary Unrest, which uh, won a jury prize award at Sundance. It was also shortlisted for an Oscar. It is a really amazing film um, and uh, it will be screening at RMIT later this week and you can catch that there or you can watch it on Netflix if you have a subscription. Uh, So I'd really highly recommend checking it out. Uh, but I welcome now from uh, LA on the phone, Jennifer Breyer. Hi, Jen. Hi, Amy. Thank you very much uh, for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, I think that this film is hugely important and it's really a call to arms, I think, uh, for everyone, for the medical uh, community, for those who suffer from myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, And it's also a call to governments to uh, take this illness seriously. So congratulations, first of all, on uh, creating such an amazing film. Thank you so much. Um, and it's so great to be here to talk to you. It's been an amazing year uh, traveling around the world with the film. Yeah. And uh, you have made huge headway really in terms of creating such uh, awareness of this illness. Uh, and I want to go into just how important uh, and significant this illness is in terms of the impact that it has on the people who uh, suffer from it and really um, are survivors in a way because they're dealing with something that is just so uh, harrowing, frustrating and uh, and just takes away the most important things um, that, that everyone would live for their careers, the, you know, the things that they loved doing, their hobbies, uh, their relationships um, are altered. So first of all, for you, uh, when you um, had this, when you got this illness, what happened and just how significant and severe were the symptoms for you? Because uh, it's quite widely uh, referenced that chronic fatigue really doesn't cut it as a name and it doesn't really reflect just how disabling uh, this illness can be for people. Yeah, and that's absolutely been my experience. I I got sick after a very high fever about uh, six years ago now. And, um, you know, I I was sick in bed for 10 days, and and I thought it was just the flu. And after the fever broke, um, I was strangely very dizzy. Like, I would get up out of bed and try to go to the bathroom and walk straight into the door frame. And um, I had about a year and a half where... I would recover, um, be relatively normal, and kind of back to my life. And then the smallest, um, you know, cold or sore throat or you know anything like that would would send me back to bed again. And I actually think I I had, you know, what I now looking back realize was a mild case of me that first year. But because I wasn't able to get a diagnosis, I kept trying to go about 
you know, with my life. Um, you know, going to my classes. I was a student at the time. You know, riding my bike like I, like I usually do. And in reality, um, I was making myself worse and worse uh, from the exertion. And so I eventually um, ended up completely bad burdened with um, neurological symptoms. I had debilitating headaches and um, often lost the ability to, um, you know, read or write or even speak. Um, and uh, and my heart rate was so high when I would stand up um, due to something called POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia, which many p- patients with ME have. It would go up to like 130 or 140 when I would stand, and so it ended up making me completely bedridden for a number of years. And so, you know, as we can hear from that, it's hugely physically debilitating, but it's also cognitively debilitating. I mean, you were studying for a PhD at Harvard. Um, You seem like you were really uh, going full throttle in life and having a great time and pursuing your dreams. And then this, you know, majorly disrupted those kind of goals and aims. I mean, how did that affect your identity and the way that you uh, perceived yourself? Um, it had a profound effect on my sense of myself. I think, without even realizing it, I think I had placed a lot of my value and sense of self-worth in my ability to read and write and think, and suddenly I couldn't do any of those things. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in bed, you know, wondering if I never get out of bed again, if I can't do these things that, you know, made me, I thought made me who I was, what value does my life have? Uh, and so I struggled a lot with that and struggled a lot with, you know, really the grief of losing, um, you know, these abilities that I once took for granted. And I think a lot of people wrestling with chronic illness or um, major disability, you know, have to have to wrestle with that. Exactly. And you uh, had just recently been married uh, when you got this illness. And I know um, in this documentary, it really follows you and your husband, Omar, um, and he becomes a primary carer for you. And really, um, it's beautiful to watch the relationship between you and just how resilient and um, close you are together. Because, you know, becoming a primary carer really is something that's hugely intimate. But when you've lost your ability to walk or speak, um, you know, Omar becomes so critical uh, to you and your um, well-being. How have you, you and Omar, really um, gotten through this period, and uh, and has that strengthened your relationship? Well, it's funny, you know, in, in sickness and in health is a, a vow that. Um, I think we don't really think about, <laughs> you know, yeah. even though there's sort of, you know, when you get married and, and if you're both young, there's this sort of abstract future, you know, one day we'll be in our 80s and then we'll take care of each other. And it definitely, this wasn't a, a circumstance that we expected to be facing together um, at the beginning, you know, of our marriage and so early in our lives. Um, you know, I think it's been enormously difficult and um, for both of us. And I think, he, you know, he would... He would, um, I think he would say that it's made him a much um, uh, more empathetic person. And um, I really do think this, an experience like this forces you to change what you value um, in yourself and in each other. Um, and it's definitely made us a lot closer. I think, uh, you know, I often describe this as like, I feel like we've like lived, been, been married for 30 years, um, <laughs> but you know, in, the best, in the best possible way. Um, and, you know, I just feel really grateful that we're together. And at the same time, I would do, you know, anything to um, have, 
you know, had the last six years have been the ones that we, you know, we expected. Um, but I think what has helped is to understand that we are not alone, that there is a very large community of people um, wrestling with the same situation, patients, um, caregivers, uh, and then a lot of people are alone and don't have, um, you know, spouses or um, uh, parents or family to support and care for them. And so um, I think we're grateful for the care that we have, but also that, you know, we just sort of think about what are we doing for everyone. That's so true. And it really does put into perspective, uh, as you say, the priorities and what we value in life and in our relationships. Um, And one of the really um, harrowing scenes, I think, is when things, um, you know, sporadically get really overwhelming for you and one of the um i guess video diary segments that you uh have put in the film was that you said i can't be anyone's mum like this i can't be anyone's wife like this i don't feel like i'm a person and i think that is really um it resonates because you know those are things that are so essential and basic to you and what and your needs and what you want and what um other people want and you feel like this illness is taking it away have you um in your kind of over this period of having this illness reconciled some of those roles um and your kind of capabilities like has that your capacity improved and do you feel like um you're in a better space now to be able to do some of the things you wish you could do um, so I guess, you know, I think, I think there's a, there, you know, there was a moment, um, and, and I should talk about this in the film, but I think early in my illness, um, when, um, I, you know, I, 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 I can't, I can't say that I was actively suicidal in the case of like, I, I had made a plan, but it was more that I, I, I kind of knew that I, I didn't have more than another year or two left of the place where I was because it had gotten, it gotten so bad. I couldn't even imagine a year, frankly. It had gotten really, really bad. And um, and I also think I realized in that moment, because I didn't want to die, that I had to somehow find a way to reconcile where I was um, with um, what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be, because I couldn't make being happy with my life contingent on getting well, because I didn't know if I would have control over that. And so I, I, I really tried to reach for a sense of peace in where I was, and I did that in part through all the patients, the other families that I meet, um, that I met in the community online and and, in real life, and then also the the people that I met in the film. And, you know, I I found, I think the first few years are the hardest, but I found a lot of people who have managed to live lives of meaning and purpose, you know, even from their bedrooms, who have managed to, um, to be parents and in some cases, you know, meet their their spouse after they got sick, you know, and after they had thought that they had lost everything. And so I, I think there's always that hope that even if there's no, you know, miracle or cure, that it is possible to live a good life. Um, and at the same time, I had to fight for every inch of health and ability that I could possibly find. And so um, I have gotten better over time, and that thanks in large part to treatment. Um, I am taking three different drugs that um, have really um, helped to um, meet a function at a higher level. I still need a wheelchair when I leave the house, but I can travel now and um, and do a lot of the things that I you know used to do. At least some of them, um, and uh, and so I'm still I still keep looking for ways to get better. And I think 
there are a lot of things um, that we could be doing for patients. You know, now if we were investing in clinical trials, you know, repurposing existing drugs and getting access and care to even more people. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, you do introduce us to some really inspirational people who are living with myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue. Um, there's a young girl in Kent in England um, who, you know, has been hugely debilitated uh, from her disease, but she's so beautifully um, resilient and her parents uh, have been looking after her uh, so much throughout it. I think that's really special is that you've brought other people into this documentary with you to give them a voice because as um, we've seen with these kind of activism campaigns, it's almost like people who suffer from this illness go missing. Um, they can't advocate for themselves because often uh, they're bedridden. 25% of patients are homebound or and or bedridden. And, uh, and it means that it's much harder to get this awareness and understanding and advocacy um, to build. But this film and this documentary really has increased that awareness. Do you think you, you yourself have seen an uptake in awareness, particularly from those in leadership positions who can... Uh, uh, take action in regard to research and treatments and, um, you know, expediting clinical diagnosis because diagnosis, as you've said, takes a very long time. It does. And, I, you know, I, I think if I had been diagnosed and given the proper management advice, you know, in the first six months of my illness, I never would have become bad and I never would have ended up in a wheelchair. So I think, I think there are, you know, the, the sort of what we're fighting for in terms of um, and I should also mention, you know, it's sort of, it, I think there's a, this sort of misperception with chronic illness that somehow it's not serious, like, because it's it's not, quote, unquote, fatal. Um, people do die from, from the disease itself, and we also have a really high epidemic of suicide in the community. We just lost two more people that I know that I know of last week. And, and so there is that urgency and also that urgency in preventing disability and preventing, um, you know, what, what I think is, is preventable harm. So we definitely want to get the word out. And, um, you know, in, you know, I guess just to give some examples, we've been doing a lot of screenings at, at parliaments. We did a screening um, um, uh, with the, the, the British Parliament. I think about 25% of Parliament have seen, have seen the film um, or seen the screener, and it started um, debates in the UK that we've been needing to have for a long time, um, also doing screenings at the, with Parliament in Finland and Scotland. And so I hope um, that we can do the same in Australia um, in order to think of, you know, in order to, to recognize that this has been a neglected patient community for decades, um, I think the thing, um, you know, and how do we get, how do we re-educate medical doctors so that they can feel confident making the diagnosis um, and understanding how to how to get get patients the, the management um, advice and care that they need. Um, you know, I remember when I first got sick going online, and I thought, you know, and I, I go into this in the film, but I I um, was initially diagnosed with what is essentially hysteria, um, and which is a very old idea. Um, about kind of women's bodies, but essentially they couldn't explain what my symptoms were, and so they they thought that my mind was was generating them, and um, uh, the the and so I thought maybe I just had a rare disease, something doctors had never seen, and so I went online and found this community that I had no idea existed of you know thousands of people representing millions around the world, and I met people who had gotten sick. Um, in their 20s, like I was, 
Um, but in the 80s and 90s, and then 20, 30 years later, they're still at home. They're still in bed. Um, and, you know, our access to treatment um, and our kind of life chances haven't, haven't changed. And so I think that was really what the urgency is. And I started to think of this as a social justice issue and one in which we really need our governments, our research communities, and the medical community to step up and sort of recognize there is this population that has been neglected and we need to take urgent action in order to get them equal access to research, treatment, and care. Absolutely. And to put this all into perspective, 17 million, and that's an estimate because uh, we don't really track very well or accurately who has uh, chronic fatigue syndrome given the the lack of diagnosis um, and tests that are available, but roughly 17 million people in the world have it. Uh, 250,000 in Australia, which is 1.2% of the population, and I believe about 1 million in America. And as you've just referenced, there is a gendered element to this and when you uh, put in your documentary this history of uh, hysteria and also how um, illnesses that disproportionately affect women such as multiple sclerosis were uh, misunderstood for very long we have seen at least that particular illness become better understood, but obviously that's more and more with um, the availability of tests like MRIs and um, spinal tap fluid tests. Uh, But this particular area, this particular illness of chronic fatigue syndrome um, does affect women more. It's about 80% uh, female who suffer from this illness. I mean, do you think when um, you've encountered and uh, the people that you know have encountered um, the medical profession, that they've encountered some kind of unconscious bias um, that has a gendered element? I mean, it's it's hard to say for for certain, um, but this whole idea of your body, you know, sort of... I I was told that... um, there was some trauma that I couldn't remember um, that uh, was suddenly causing all of these symptoms after a high fever. A neurologist told me this. And I actually just talked to a neurosurgeon today, and I finally got, um, you know, someone to probably look at my MRI from 2012. And he said, you know, you have pressure in your brain, and it's crushing your pituitary gland. I can see you have a super abnormal MRI. And um, they just didn't. They just didn't catch it. Um, and uh, the the um, and so I just I just think that you know doctors are often trained to recognize patterns that they have been trained to recognize. And if you deviate from that pattern, um, it, it, it's almost like they can't see what's right in front of their their eyes. And and the the, the patterns that he, that we train doctors to recognize are a function of so many upstream things. It's about the research we invest in, it's about where we choose to put the money, and it's also fundamentally about who we choose to believe. And so I do think that, you know, there's been this history, not just with this disease, but with a range of autoimmune diseases, um, all of, you know, many of which also disproportionately affected, affect women, where we do disbelieve women. Um, and we know from research that women are more likely to be under-medicated for their pain when they go and report pain to a doctor. Um, and so I do think that there is this sort of um, gender bias that, that, is, that is happening in diagnosis and treatments. But um, it doesn't mean that men have easy time of it at all. Um, it's, you know, I think men are also disbelieved and often have the same trouble um, accessing treatment and care as women do. Indeed, and masculinity and standards or expectations of men and their need to just toughen up um, are also... 
play into a gendered element for their experience. Uh, just on that medical research element, I know that some really important research is happening um, at universities like Stanford. Um, do you have greater hope now that we're getting closer to some kind of understanding of the biological underpinnings of this uh, illness and also potentially a, a way to screen um, and diagnose people with CFS, particularly looking at the US situation? Because I will get into um, the Australian research a bit later. Yeah, well, it's it's been really um, thrilling to see so many new research groups enter the field um, around the world. So, um, in the U.S., there's groups in you know Stanford and um, uh, San Diego and Columbia and Harvard and um, Cornell and you know a, a number of other uh, universities who are starting to research this disease. And and so I think that is really exciting. I think what um, is frustrating is that the research funding has not kept a pace of that interest, and um, and it's still a relatively small um, field um, as compared to you know other diseases that affect similar populations. So I still think we have a long way to go, but it, we're definitely starting to get really really good science that's happening, um, you know, and helping us to understand the kind of underlying metabolic defects that we're finding in patients, the, um, you know, um, abnormalities in our microbiome, in um, the immune system, and also um, brain imaging, um, you know, studies happening in Japan as well as in Boston. Um, a lot of work happening in the UK and in Norway. So it's really starting to, I think, um, you know, uh, uh, um, we're starting to make real concrete progress. And I th- we're at a point now where it is absolutely um, the consensus in the U.S. and I think in many places around the world that this is a quote-unquote biological disease that we can measure um, and that we can actually see in patients' bodies. I think it's going to take time to take what's happened in the research laboratory setting and translate that into kind of a cheap and easy-to-deploy um, commercial laboratory test that we can, um, that, doc- that doctors can use to diagnose patients. And so even though um, we don't, we're not quite there yet, I think we're getting much closer and that's going to help a tremendous amount in terms of getting patients access to diagnosis and treatments um, much earlier in their, in their uh, disease. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I'm speaking with Jennifer Breyer, director of the film Unrest, which is about her experience and the experience of other people around the world who suffer from myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And Jennifer, just finally, um, I'd really like to know uh, about your next steps and the plans that you have for the future. Um, This is your first feature film. Uh, It's done such an amazing um, job at raising awareness, and I'm sure it's it's going to have a very long life in terms of its relevance and importance uh, to people. But what plans do you have personally and, I guess, professionally, um, you know, in the next short to medium term? Um, sure. Well, I guess uh, personally I'm, I'm continuing with my activism and um, I, you know, if anyone is interested in supporting, uh, like in supporting the movement, um, uh, we are organizing a, a day of action um, on May 12th called Millions Missing, which you see in the film. Um, and there'll be another one happening worldwide um, with, um, I'm sure, many events happening in Australia. So you can go to millionsmissing.org um, to find out more about that. And um, so, you know, I'm going to keep fighting. Um, and I also, you know, if I can take one thing from this experience that I think has been positive and unexpected, it's that I've fallen in love with film and filmmaking and, and the medium of film. And so 
Um, I'm eager to make more films, um, both documentaries, but also narrative films. So I'm developing some uh, some fiction shorts um, that I'm hoping to make in the next year or so. That's really exciting and also um, inspirational because I think uh, what is often really difficult um, for people who may not have um, a chronic illness or a disability to understand is that um, people who have these illnesses are incredibly resilient, incredibly talented, and they still have many abilities. And just because they have an illness doesn't mean that they can't do the things um, that they may want and there may be compromises, but they can still achieve a lot of great things. And you are just demonstrating that um, by, you know, putting together this film and, uh, and having such a huge success with your activism. So I want to thank you um, for leading the way and also for highlighting and bringing up with you those people who up until now didn't have a voice. And um, and I really hope that uh, we see some huge improvements in the next year or so. Thank you so much. Um, and I also just say that, you know, uh, uh, to, to badly quote someone, it's not so much that we didn't have a voice is that we were screaming and nobody heard us. Mm. And so hopefully now people will start to hear us. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. I'm speaking now with a panel of experts and wonderful, inspiring people, and uh, I'll um, name them from left to right, not that you can see, but I can. So we've got uh, Anna Kerr, who is an activist and a person who suffers from myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, We also have Chris Armstrong, who is a researcher at the Bio21 Molecular Science and Biotechnology Institute, which is based at the University of Melbourne. And we also have Dr. Heidi Nickel, who is the incoming new CEO of a group, a not-for-profit called Emerge Australia. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Good morning. Um, It's really great to have you all here because you all offer such fascinating insights into this. Really, um, it's an area that hasn't been discussed greatly publicly, um, certainly not compared to some of the other chronic illnesses um, that are autoimmune-based or also um, cancers, which have, you know, obviously and rightly so had a lot of airtime and a lot of uh, funding into them. But this has been significantly lacking in focus, public awareness um, and also funding. Uh, So I'd like to, um, I guess, through our chat get, you know, gain some insights for myself, for the listeners about, um, you know, just how important this illness is in terms of its effect and impact on the people who are suffering from it here in Australia, the important research that is being done, the research that needs to be done, and also the kind of funding um, arrangements that we have in place and whether they are adequate or not. So um, with that said, uh, I'll head to Anna first because Anna, um, I'm really excited to have you here because you're offering us a really important personal insight in to your, you know, lived experience of um, dealing with the daily, you know, struggle that is ME or myalgic encephalomyelitis. So, um, Anna, I know that um, you you have a really interesting backstory and you have a background in clinical psychology. Mm -hmm. So, could you tell me a bit about um, how, you know, you developed this illness and the types of impacts that it started to have at the beginning and and where Mm -hmm. you're at at the moment? 
Well, my story's actually fairly similar to Jen Breyer's, but my um, illness came on gradually and it started after around about the time of my pregnancy with my first child, which was about 14, 13 years ago. And I started having some really odd symptoms after a very traumatic birth and uh, symptoms that I couldn't make sense of. And I look back now and realise that was sort of the milder end of the illness. So I got lots of pain that was unresolved. I, I had awful nausea. I developed these intolerances to things that I had no problem with before, like a glass of wine would make me feel really ill. Uh, caffeine I couldn't tolerate. And these symptoms sort of built up, including what's what we call the brain fog of the illness, which doesn't really at the more severe end of the illness describe what it's like, but this sort of, it's like you're thinking through pea soup. And I would also have, I was working at the time, and so I would go to work and then come home and spend I'd be driving home feeling like, oh, I've got the flu again or I've got gastro again. And I'd think, how on earth have I got that again? And then I'd spend the, the days between finishing work and starting work again, sick and in bed. Basically what happened is my health deteriorated over the years until I got to what is known as a very acute or severe stage where I absolutely could no longer... Um, work or function in any way, shape or form that I recognised. So I became very severe in 2011 and was finally diagnosed once I became bed bound and couldn't do a thing. Now that level level of illness um, is uh, almost an intolerable state of being. A lot of people call it a living death and some people live like that for decades. So I was um, confined to a darkened room. I was unable to tolerate noise or even movement. I couldn't get to the doctor because I was too ill to actually tolerate the uh, trip to the doctor and back. So I had to have phone contact with my doctor. And it felt like uh, none of the descriptors that they have for... um, myalgic encephalomyelitis it felt like my whole brain was poisoned and like my my brain was too big for my skull it was like it was swollen Mm. and I had 24-hour pain 24-hour nausea and I couldn't stand up for more than uh, about 30 seconds to a minute because there are orthostatic intolerance problems with people who have ME, which is why it's so disabling, is that when we stand up, quite often that's, that exacerbates dramatically uh, the range of some 60-plus symptoms that we can experience. It's a multi-systemic illness. So the thing that people, it's very hard to explain, is that it really is a brain a lot of the symptoms come from the brain dysfunction. And uh, so even thinking or um, any kind of stimulation when you're in the more severe end can make you feel incredibly horrible. Mm. And including things like having a sensitivity to sound and light. Yes, yep. so I have to wear earplugs a lot now. At the time when I was more severe, because I've improved through a lot of aggressive rest, Um, and a lot of what's called pacing, which is where you do a tiny bit of something and then rest. Uh, So at the time I had children who were three and five and we had floorboards in the house and I just remember being absolutely lying there, feeling like I was sort of on the edge of a seizure uh, because of the noise of their footsteps 
on the uh, on the floorboards. Mm. So it's it's hard to explain when you haven't experienced it before because it that particular symptom is very strange when you haven't had it before. How yeah. can noise make you sick? Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, it's like I guess I see it now is it's almost like you have a you have a brain injury. And if you compare people who've had severe brain injury, often they're unable initially to tolerate stimulation at all and you have mm. to be very careful about um, minimising that in order to stay as functional as you can. Yes. Um, and the name, which is, you know, it's a highly complex name, myalgic encephalomyelitis, yeah. does refer to inflammation yes. in the brain and other parts of the body and the muscles. And that's so, exactly what it feels like, in mm. fact. It feels uh, when when you're in what, what patients call a crash, which is where they've overdone it, they've sort of gone past this magic invisible line that you never know where it is, really, yeah. um, of uh, of over overexerting is you go into what's called a crash or patients call it payback because it feels very punishing and it happens after often mm. sometimes during but often after you've overexerted and you can it's almost like sometimes like there's a, a scene in the film where Jennifer Bray is coming back from an event and she's clutching in her head and then she has to lie down and she can't speak mm. I've had lots of those incidents and it feels like your your brain is actually inflaming mm. uh, and it can affect your speech um, your ability to communicate, even your thoughts. You have no thoughts whatsoever. You can't even think. And that's a really odd experience as well. It must be really distressing um, when you're in that kind of situation mm. where you can't even verbalise the types of things that you're experiencing and perhaps your mm. partner or your carer yeah. is in a state of panic because they don't yeah. know what's happening or it seems yeah. it looks very serious and, and there isn't really a way to bring you out of that immediately, is there? Well, the best... The best way for me, I have POTS, which is something that um, that Jennifer Breyer mentioned, which is when I stand, when I go from a lying to a standing position, my heart rate goes up dramatically. Is um, the best way to assist that is lying down. So we spend a lot of time lying down, which looks to, from the outside like sort of laziness and or, or malingering, but in fact it is a way of allowing the body to recover. Mm. And so as if you you can get flat as soon as possible. I've had my kids pushing me by my feet down the hallway back to bed, which they find hilarious. But um, it's when I'm, you know, lying, I'm collapsed on the floor. I actually can't conjure the energy mm. to even lift my head or lift my arm or get myself back to bed. So they have to take me there, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you get some, some form of um, recovery at some point by lying down. Yeah, and it's not recovery necessarily to health. It's mm. recovery back to your, in quotes, normal. So yeah. I oscillate between about 10 and 30% of what I used to be able to do pre-illness. Mm. Um, but some people can um, are only at sort of 1%. And so even lying, turning over in bed or going to the toilet, they experience this crash or this payback. Whereas for me, it might be, 
um, a trip out for a couple of hours today or it might, depending on how functional I am at the time. And for someone else, it might be working part-time and then spending the rest of the time lying down to be able to be upright again. Mm. Yes, because this is an, a, a disease which does have, I guess, a scale in terms yeah. of the impact on people um, and it can be you know, mild to severe at various points yes. within the illness it's, itself and people can oscillate between those spectrums exactly. or kind of hover at one point if they can manage the energy levels and, um, you, you know, that hover. line mm. um, that you don't want to go over. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking with Anna Kerr, Chris Armstrong and Heidi Nickel here. Chris, I'll head to you now because um, we've referenced some of these biological and physical symptoms and also cognitive elements. Um, I know you're researching a particularly complex field. I read a couple of your journal articles, uh, tried to read more like, but um, <laughs> it, it really is an impressive field. And I know that the microbiome, for example, has become a hot topic in the research community more recently. In terms of um, the research that you're doing at Bio21 with your colleagues, what are some of the areas and that you're looking at and could you translate it to a bit of a layman's language? Sure. So um, the research has focused on um, the metabolism of the blood and the urine of, of patients, but also um, from faecal samples and in that also looking at the microbes that they have in their faecal samples. Um, and that research has been going on for about a decade, actually. The um, more the microbe stuff has been going on for a decade. That was actually my colleagues before I joined in. They um, found a microbial difference, a significant one, between people with MECFS and healthy controls. Um, and from that, we decided to look at the metabolism or the metabolites they produce, so what those gut bacteria produce and how that associates with changes of what um, metabolites exist in the blood and the urine. And when I say metabolites, I mean stuff like glucose, um, amino acids, or organic acids, just small molecules within the body that help everything run. Mm. And what is the difference between someone who has ME and has this kind of dysfunction in, that, in those systems versus someone who's generally healthy? Well, you tend to get a change from what we observed is that you get a change of more of an overgrowth. Um, it looks as though... Uh, almost that bacteria have different type of um, diet or substrates that are coming through. Um, we think what might be happening is that there's a, there's a switch more to using amino acids within the host to provide energy rather than sugar. And when you use amino acids, they actually make proteins and those proteins from the body are used to break down dietary, subs, uh, dietary substrates um, in, the, in the gut and then those again get absorbed by your body. But if you aren't producing those uh, those enzymes, uh, then they actually provide more food for the bacteria in your gut to then take over. Right. So we think that those bacteria are actually getting more dietary or different types of dietary um, components than they would in a healthy person because the people aren't actually breaking down that dietary stuff themselves. Okay, so they're not getting as much energy, physical energy from that input. Yeah. 
and it's going elsewhere. Well, it's hard to decide whether they're getting as much. They're certainly getting it in a different way. Mm. Um, And there are a lot of different diseases or other issues which microbiota are having this sort of effect with, Mm -hmm. Um, even cancers and stuff like that, where the different types of molecules they're creating, if you become more reliant on on the bacteria, you're also at their mercy. So they're producing energy molecules for the body, but also other things that could be harmful. Right. And in terms of that bacteria that exists um, in the gut, like where does it come from? Is it pre-existing and does it just kind of increase from some unknown mechanism or, you know, is there something going on there? Like what, how far have you gotten to understand that particular issue? Well, I guess you, you come into contact with a, lots of different types of bacteria all the time. Um, the ones, the way that they increase, we think it's more like an, any type of ecosystem. So your gut is really just an ecosystem like any riverland or anything like that. And the way you disturb that ecosystem is by providing a different food source or providing a predator or something like that. And bacteria have those same sort of things. So if you're providing different types of food or a larger amount of one type of food, then that type of bacteria are going to take over from what the norm was before. Right. Because there is um, an illness called Clostridium difficile, which I know has a, maybe it's not completely similar, but it does have a bacteria that kind of multiplies. And then there are a couple of treatments for that. One is um, a quite unpleasant one about, you know, having a fecal transplant. Are there things that you can learn from other diseases that have similar issues going on in terms of potential new treatments or things to test? Definitely. I think uh, it's a big advocate for that. Um, That's part of a a big part of the research we want to get done in the future is trying to get other people from other disorders looking at this disorder with their experience. And science is really a specialised field. Everyone has their thing that they know and the techniques that they know. So it's important to get people with that experience in those other disorders to come over so that we can see whether something that they've seen in another disorder is similar here Mm. in chronic fatigue syndrome. But definitely we use that for models. So reading other papers with other diseases is important for working out, kind of trying to untangle all the data and information that we get that helps a lot. Yeah. And it's also, you know, it must be difficult because you're looking for some kind of causation, but often it may be a correlation and it's hard to know what the real cause is behind this illness. Well, that's correct. Most of the studies so far has focused on observation, which is largely, it's all correlation Mm -hmm. really. Until you start manipulating the samples and manipulating the things themselves, that's um, that's when you can try and work out or prove causation. Um, and that's kind of where we're going into now. From At the start, we were looking at patients' blood, um, looking at the types of bacteria and all this sort of stuff. Now mm. we're trying to get into this field of looking at cells themselves and then changing, trying to culture cells of people with MECFS and, and healthy people and then trying to change the environment that they're in to see how their cells respond yeah. and trying to control for that causation. Mm. See if there is something there. It's so complex. Um, we have one of your colleagues here with us uh, in the green room from London. Uh, <laughs> so it's just a testament to the amount of collaboration you do. You cross the oceans uh, to do this kind of research together and to share ideas. What kind of um, collaborations are you currently undertaking with uh, colleagues um, overseas and also in Australia? Well, this Fane, Fane's from UCL, so I'm collaborating with him. On, Which is um, the University College University of College London, London yeah. Yeah, in the UK. Um, we're actually on the way to going to La Trobe University at this very moment because <laughs> um, we're I'm doing a collaboration with them as well, looking at lymphoblasts and, and a similar type of thing, looking at metabolism over time. 
Um, that's with La Trobe University. I'm also working with um, the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. We're looking at um, changes in cytokines over time and how that relates to changes in metabolites. Um, and we're also looking at um, research with our group in um, the University of... Um, uh, I think it's, it's in Norway, and they're looking at changes in bacteriotherapy, which is the faecal transplant, mm. and looking at that longitudinally and seeing how that changes. And then we also have on and off collaborations with Stanford University and um, and also collaborating with ANU, so the Australian National University, and part of our project. So That's they're the great. ones that we're managing at the moment. Mm. They're the key ones right <laughs> now, but we've also got ones in the future that we're planning to, to get on board with. Excellent. Um, I will come back to you on... Uh, in particular, those collaborations. I'm going to head to Heidi Nichol, who is, um, she has a PhD in medical ethics, I believe, and she is now the CEO of Emerge Australia. Uh, Heidi, you um, have come into this role recently. I'd like to know a bit about what motivated you to become the CEO of this organisation and why you've become passionate about um, helping and patients and trying to change um, the, I guess, the advocacy and the funding for myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome? Thank you, Amy. Um, Yeah, I think for me, when I first came across this position, I looked at it and I read it through and I thought, would this fit with me? And I thought it might fit with me. And then I thought, I'm not sure that I could take this on. It's such a difficult area. And I went away and it stayed with me. It stayed with me, this position that was there. And I thought, this is a position where people are in need. And I went back to it and I reread it and I did more research. And then I think, as I said at my interview, I felt like I had hugely overprepared because I got sucked in. I got <laughs> sucked into this story. I watched Unrest, the documentary on Netflix. Um, I wasn't lucky enough to go to a screening with a panel like is happening on Sunday. Um, but yeah, I watched uh, the documentary and I read some papers and I read around and I thought, okay, well, my training is in ethics. So I was a research scientist uh, many moons ago, uh, like Dr. Armstrong here, although perhaps not as eminent. Um, So I had a background in research science and I thought, well, I should be able to work my way through some of the papers. I will have something to give in that area. And then I thought, but I've spent the last 10 years as a medical ethicist. I've been teaching medical students. I've worked a little bit at the patient bedside as well. And I thought, how does ethics fit with myalgic encephalomyelitis? And I thought, well, it's pretty obvious, really. People are being harmed. And if people are being harmed in the, you know, by the medical profession or in the way that they access treatments, then that is an area that I could be, I, I could give something with. And apart from, in addition to that, I think that there's a lot of injustice. So with patients who have MECFS, it really depends on where they are lucky enough to live, the physicians that they can access. Um, there's also obviously with NDIS coming in at the moment. Um, if you get a sympathetic assessor or if you're in an area where people know about MECFS or have a background in understanding this as the chronic illness that it is, um, people People are getting very, very varied results. So in all ways across the spectrum, I think that there is an ethical issue here. Mm. And I mean, you reference um, 
the patient bedside and the medical profession. And I know that it's a bit of a merry-go-round for patients because, I mean, there are a range of physicians and specialists who would have some understanding of the biological underpinnings of, uh, of myalgic encephalomyelitis, but they don't really own it. It's not really you know, their specialty, that it's kind of hard to find one doctor who will take ownership of this type of illness because it is, you know, multi-systemed, as you said, Anna. And, um, you know, they are, as Jennifer said, uh, you know, trained to look at categories and to have, you know, to have certain symptoms fit it fit certain boxes and, um, you know, you would go through a certain list of tests for those certain boxes and, you know, investigate them. Whereas this illness, it's just so complex, as we've already heard, and the research is still, you know, it has been done for decades. It's still going, but it's, you know, we're still in its infancy in terms of understanding what's happening in the body, Um, making huge strides, though, at the moment. I mean, in terms of, um, you know, the medical profession and your uh, organization working you know with these different types of stakeholders how far are you getting in terms of you know education increasing awareness um, and obviously trying to expedite diagnosis so that people who do have this illness um, don't you know overdo things because they're unaware that they have it and potentially don't harm themselves in the long term well one of the things that we are doing that is um, very specific to your question is we have been working on putting together a list of health practitioners who do have a specialty in this area. So we reached out to our members and our allied community um, over the last year and we have asked them all to fill in a little just little survey online asking them to recommend healthcare practitioners where they've had a positive experience. And obviously there's a lot of people out there that have not necessarily had a positive experience and it means that what we can do is we can state by state, we can put together a little list of places where people can expect to have a a, a positive interaction with with Mm. the healthcare practitioner. But yeah, it's a huge problem with the lack of diagnosis or the the lack of a biomedical diagnostic test is just a huge problem. Um, It's a diagnosis of exclusion, really. So what happens with patients is they have a lot of tests done, they have blood tests done, and it just keeps coming back negative, Mm. you know? So there, there there isn't anything else, and therefore they end up being diagnosed with, it looks like you may have this. Mm. But then we end up with so many different sets of symptoms and so many different areas that people could go to. So what we're trying to do at Emerge Australia is we're really trying to provide the information, we're trying to provide, um, we've got a really good website so that we can help people, especially in that initial journey when they're given this, you know, sometimes very um, very non-definite diagnosis or what feels like it isn't a very definite diagnosis and that we can really help them to find a specialised healthcare practitioner that we can give them the information about what we know about MECFS. We can discuss things like the research that Dr Armstrong is doing and all of the other researchers around Australia. And we can kind of connect up with people like Anna here saying, you know, these are patient journeys. There is light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully in many cases, um, and really just try and support people. Um, We also obviously try and support people through things like the NDIS pathway. Um, And then we do advocacy as well, just to try and link together, like with May, 12th Awareness Day to try and really get ourselves on on, on the uh, political landscape. Mm. And Anna, um, I know 
you know, we, we pick up on what Heidi said. It must be particularly frustrating, you know, seeing such a range of doctors, having so mm. many tests done and the uncertainty initially of having no idea what is happening mm. to you and do you have a, you know, a disease that will kill you immediately, um, mm. you know, and that's where doctors often try and rule those things out first and then, you know, you're left with a whole range of other things. I mean, how was your experience in terms of going through that process as a patient and trying to find, get some understanding? Well, mine was fairly typical, I think, in that I took years and years and years to get a diagnosis and for someone to put it together and predominantly that is your G. And uh, really, what we, I guess, what we're pushing for at the moment is that contemporary information become part of the mainstream uh, understanding in the medical community about this condition. And in fact, really, uh, at the moment, and things have changed in the even in the last few years. It's actually not very difficult to diagnose this illness. I know we talk about it being a diagnosis of exclusion, but there are very, very specific gold standard criteria that are used called the international consensus criteria which clearly um, and in great detail point out the um, the the kind of issues to look for and the cardinal issue is this sort of um, what they call post-exertional uh, it, they use the term malaise or neuroimmune exhaustion or patients say exacerbation of symptoms where even very trivial or minor kinds of exertions, mental, physical exertions can create this cascade effect or crash, crash effect in a patient. That's actually quite easy to recognise when you know about it. Mm. There are also quite a number of medications on the market that aren't um, PBS funded for using with chronic fatigue syndrome ME uh, that have been really very helpful particularly for the autonomic or the orthostatic issues so there are a number of medications that can really improve quality of life for patients um, but it's a, a matter of, of doctors knowing about those and they are on the market and I'm using quite a few of them and they've helped reduce symptoms of severity. In terms of functionality that's the area of difficulty for ME is that you can sort of work on the symptoms and, and, and improve quality of life but often that means you're sort of disproportionately uniquely disabled because of some of the orthostatic problems but you do become unfortunately Unfortunately, you have to become your own case manager and so often your your GP is your base and you hope that they've got some belief in the condition but I've had lots of times where I've been sort of sent off for things that don't work like exercise or, or talk therapies which you know may assist you with coping with the fact that you've got a physical illness but don't improve your symptoms mm. and in fact sometimes make you worse if you're not able to get to appointments um, but there are there are certainly uh, treatments that can help what we need is the information to get into the doctor's minds and into the doctor's surgeries mm. so that they're using whatever's available at the moment which doesn't seem to be happening either. Um, um, doctors are often relying on very outdated kind of exercise therapies or talk therapies as, as a recommendation or putting people on antidepressants when they're not depressed, yeah. those sorts of things. And that can certainly, the side effects of those medications yeah. can also Awful. mean you're far more you unwell. Make, make you worse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's definitely not helpful. Um, yeah. 
I'm speaking with Anna Kerr, uh, Dr. Chris Armstrong and Dr. Heidi Nichol. Uh, we're going to be back in one minute to round out this conversation uh, about myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue. So stick around. You are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM. It is three minutes to 11. I'm speaking with a wonderful panel, Dr. Heidi Nichol, Dr. Chris Armstrong and Anna Kerr, and they've been illuminating the many issues involved with myalgic encephalomyelitis and it's otherwise known as chronic fatigue syndrome. But as we know, it doesn't really encapsulate the myriad of symptoms and the severity of symptoms that people experience. Now, I want to finish our our discussion with a a kind of look at, I guess, the hope and also how we can expedite that hope a bit for people who are suffering from ME. Um, First of all, Heidi, uh, when we're talking about funding, particularly government funding of medical research, that is a really crucial um, source of money for many academics in a range of fields, but particularly in medical fields. We do have philanthropic donations, but in this particular area with this particular illness, what is the situation in Australia for research funding? Sorry about that. Go ahead. Am I here? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think it's chronically underfunded. I mean, Dr Armstrong will talk more about this from his experience as a laboratory researcher. What we're doing at Emerge Australia is we are trying to advocate um, at a political level. So we went to Canberra a couple of weeks ago and we're just speaking to as many people in power as we can. Um, we need more money. We need money to support patients. We need money for research. Yes. And I mean, if you're advocating in Canberra, what are some of the things that you have been, you know, drilling into these politicians to make them understand the significance, um, the level of uh, debilitation that people experience, because it really affects their capacity to live, to work, to um, care for their children, to have relationships, um, romantic ones, family ones. It really impacts upon their whole life. And, uh, and that obviously has monetary effects for them and um, confidence effects. It, you know, it has a whole quality of life uh, impact that we see with other serious diseases that are getting funding. I mean, what are some of the arguments that you utilise when you're having these conversations? Well, I think the biggest thing that we say is go and watch Unrest by Jen Breer. <laughs> um, you know, it's such a brilliant film that kind of gives people this personal insight. Um, the other thing that we are really trying to drill in is how many Australians uh, actually do suffer from this illness um, and how they are invisible. So it is the millions missing. It, it is the aspect that there are people in the politician's constituency who may be housebound, who may be bedbound, and their stories are just not being heard. So something that we really need at Emerge Australia is we need more members, we need more allies, we need people to get in touch with us so that we can find people's stories in these different constituencies around Australia and then we can go to the politicians and say, here is this named specific person, here is their story, and that's what really makes the politicians more interested. Mm. And uh, as of, I think it was um, January, January 2016, and it's up on the Emerge website, Um, the government responded to say that since 2000, uh, the National Health and Medical Research Council provided funding for myalgic encephalomyelitis research totaling approximately $2.4 million. And during that time, 22 applications seeking funding were submitted to that body. I mean, $2.4 million is nothing. It's a drop in 
in the ocean for the type of impact that this has on the number of Australians, 250,000 people at least, that we know of. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, how what would be adequate funding? Well, I have seen a, a, a document that's come across my desk, which was put together by um, somebody, one of our fantastic political allies. And I think he was asking for, um, it was... Actually, I'm not going to. I'm not going to give the figures, but it was a, a vastly increased amount of money that we're that we're taking to the politicians and saying. So I don't. I don't have that document with me, but we need more mm. more funding. And Chris, from um, your perspective, your job hinges on uh, government grants. It hinges on philanthropic grants, a whole range of sources of funding. How have you experienced this in terms of, you know, seeking funding for your your research at Bio21 Institute? Yeah, well, we've had um, a great impact of, of funding from um, philanthropic ventures, Mason Foundation, which is the main foundation for funding research in Australia. Um, but that is obviously of a small nature relative to the large amounts of money that you require from government, like from governmental resources. Um, probably the largest grants we would get would be about a hundred thousand dollars in any one year, um, and that's you know that's very small relative to the amount that they give out. Um, so that the other organisations will have, or other other researchers will have for other illnesses. So uh, we've also started up our own philanthropic venture to try and get people who are interested in funding our research directly, which is through a website called Melbourne Bioanalytics. Yep. Um, that takes you to a donations link with the University of Melbourne, which directly goes to the research that we're working on. Um, but otherwise, we apply through grants through the philanthropic organisation, Mason's Foundation, other ones overseas internationally. And we're also applying with NHMRC with the government itself. We did one this year. Um, and we will be doing ones, obviously, in the future, and we're hoping that they can eventually get more money, especially into biomedical research. And I am going to Canberra uh, next week to talk to them about biomedical research that we're doing in Australia, talk to Parliament about that, and talk about um, more of the aspects of the biomedical nature. I think just to get into the minds more of all these biochemical findings that we're finding across the world mm. on this disorder um, and moving away from more of the... Uh, psychotherapy or cognitive therapy yes well it's hugely unhelpful and really not relevant to people to say you just need to talk about it with a counsellor or psychologist and, you know, your symptoms will improve. Sure. Um, and, I mean, this kind of advocacy that researchers like yourself are doing is really important. Do you know, um, you know, about the global landscape and whether Australia is, um, you know, less funded than other countries? Are there any countries kind of leading the way or kind of have recently put more funding towards uh, research into myalgic encephalomyelitis? Well, I would say um, Australia was actually for a while because of this Mason Foundation we had some of the largest amounts of funding which was even small considerably but we still had some of the largest in the world and from that we actually we had our metabolomics work and the microbe work which is now the first they were the first research in that field and now the rest of the world that's that's the main focus mm. um, I know in the NIH in America they've given out tens of millions of dollars now for pretty much pro projects which are based on the microbe and the metabolome all this sort of same sort of studies and they're they're really backing it so in the NIH in America are definitely leading the way now 
Right. So we need to get Australia's politicians to sit up and listen um, about this. Now, Anna, um, I want to hear from you about advocacy. Uh, We can donate if we so wish to the Melbourne Bioanalytics, is it Foundation? Yeah. And what's the website, Chris? Uh, It's melbournebioanalytics.org. Great. So that is a direct way that we can um, contribute. But also, Anna, in your view, what can we be doing um, to to, uh, you know, people who um, want to support those who have myalgic encephalomyelitis, what can they do and what needs to be done? Mm, So much. We're a community of enormous need. Uh, But uh, Jen Breyer, who is an amazing person, as well as having made her film mostly from her bed in the last four years, has also set up a grassroots advocacy organisation, which really, for the first time, enabled patients with right across the spectrum, so we're talking about the very mild ones to the extremely severe, to take part in advocacy. And uh, the organisation is called ME Action. And if you go to the website, it's meaction.net. And basically, they have um, enabled um, patients to, I guess, from their beds or from wherever they are, to take small and very large actions Uh, depending on their level of health or depending on how they are at the time because this is a fluctuating illness and so some um, days or weeks you're capable of doing more, other days and weeks you're not. Um, So uh, that's, you know, that's been incredibly powerful for patients. Um, They've also, I mean, as well as initiating a lot of um, uh, advocacy for patients in in Congress in America, in in Australian politics, in encouraging that sort of involvement from patients, they've also set up um, what they're calling this year visibility actions or global days of actions called Millions Missing. And the focus has been on making uh, this illness visible. Initially, uh, we've used shoes um, as a display to represent uh, the, the number of people who are missing from their lives due to this illness. We've had two such events in Melbourne. We've had events in Brisbane, uh, in um, at Bondi Beach in Sydney. We've had them all around the world in in major cities and in small country towns and even in people's backyards people have put shoes out to represent and posted online and had a virtual campaign for this millions missing day of action and coming up on May 12th which, which is coinciding with the international MECFS awareness day uh, we are having another millions missing um, global day of action and there'll be all sorts of exciting things happening uh, both online on Twitter, on Facebook on all the social media sites um, massive campaigns to raise awareness and to bring um, government attention really to this illness which requires a lot more funding. Just on the sort of um, level of um, comparing illnesses mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't, it's not taking away the legitimacy of the funding for other illnesses but to give you an example um, uh, I think HIV AIDS in Australia receives something like 15 million per year or a little bit more now mm. um, and uh, illnesses like MS receive about 9 million 
and MECFS uh, up until very recently has received about $100,000 in biomedical research. So there's a, gr- a, a massive inequity there. But also these are illnesses, HIV, AIDS and multiple sclerosis that are far less prevalent than MECFS. So there's a, you know, it's, it's just completely incommensurate with the level of disability that the illness causes as well as the numbers. So we're really looking to get those those numbers vastly improved. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that perhaps uh, the people who are much more physically well than those with ME mm. can do is to physically turn up and... Yeah you know, create a presence because um, that is something which a lot of people are unable to do depending on the day. Yes, absolutely. It's very hard for patients to get there, which is why we've used the shoes often Mm. with notes from the patients who can't turn up themselves. But, uh, you know, we have been able to stage some physical events, but the issue is that we have to advocate for ourselves. And the problem is that some people who have coordinated um, millions missing events, physical events, some of those people are actually from a year and a half, two years ago, have still not come up to their normal level of functioning because of the impact. So sometimes mm. you can overdo it to the point where you are more ill for months and months and months. Yeah. And some people actually get worse. So it has a huge impact. So we actually have the need for people to help us, allies, uh, and also funded advocacy uh, so that we can continue to bring attention to this illness. Absolutely. Now, um, we're all here because there is a screening happening at RMIT this Sunday um, and it is currently sold out, but you need to keep checking the Tribe Booking website and I've put a link to the event on our Facebook page so you can check that too because the organiser regularly updates people um, when tickets become available. So please check that out. There will be an excellent panel featuring Anna Kerr and Chris Armstrong as well as some other fabulous people such as Professor Neil McGregor who you work with I believe Chris as well as um, some international guests uh, including Fane Menza who is in our green room and he's from the University College um, in London as well as a journalist from um, and a health reporter who has written for the New York Times David Tuller um, and covered some of the PACE trials which have been broadly criticised in terms of their rigour and uh, findings. So that's going to be a really great discussion. Uh, I hope people can head along if possible. It's at 2pm Sunday the 18th of March, the RMIT Lower Theatre Building 80. And if you miss out, you can watch Unrest now, anytime on Netflix if you have a subscription. Um, Please avail yourself of that and, uh, and watch it because it is really important and I think by seeing what happens, you'll have a greater understanding of just how serious this is and how we need to um, amplify the voices of people with ME. And Anna, you can have the final say. I just wanted to say if people want to know where there are community screenings in their area, there are they are happening all around Australia. We're hoping to have more in Melbourne uh, and they often are really um, exciting because they, are, they include a panel and people can learn more about it. So if they go to unrest.film, on the on the net they can find out where their local screening might be excellent thank you very much to Annika Dr Chris Armstrong and also Dr Heidi Nichol um, for taking the time to really 
thrash this all out, have a proper chat and get some awareness going on um, through this wonderful film, Unrest, uh, directed by Jennifer Breyer. And hope you have a wonderful day. Thank Cheers. you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you.